right. Uh, so um, this morning, here with us in the Zendo, uh, we have our guiding teacher, Dean, and Keith, Marcus, and Jill. And joining us on Zoom, we have Joe um, and Jeff. Am I missing anyone? No, I think that's it. I think that's everyone. So welcome. Good morning. Glad you're here. So this is um, our first Jukai class. And um, I wanted to just take a moment to talk about um, what what that is. Um, so Jukai is the ceremony in which a person who has been uh, drawn to or interested or has started practicing um, Zen uh, is looking to take on um, Buddhist vows. Uh, and our vows are the vows of the Bodhisattva. So, our vow is to uh, save uh, all beings from suffering. And the way in which we do that is uh, by living um, ethical lives. The ethics that we practice in our daily life uh, are guided by the uh, precepts. I'll be talking about those uh, in a little while. Um, so uh, individuals who are looking to deepen their Zen Buddhist practice um, uh, might join a group like this uh, and um, pursue a course of study uh, primarily based on um, in our case right now, the way of the Bodhisattva by Shantideva um, or other texts and books um, like Being Upright by Rev Anderson and several others. Um, in addition to a daily practice of sitting um, and working with the precepts in our lives, we also sew um, uh, our rakasu, which I'm wearing here. Um, and that is also um, a deep meditative practice. Um, so for example, the rakasu, which is a uh, small representation of Buddha's robes um, and are specifically constructed in ways that reflect um, Buddha's world. Um, we often refer to it as um, wearing the Tathagatha's teachings. So it's an embodiment of um, our practice where we're um, following um, Buddha's path. And it's a meditative practice in that when we are sowing our rakasu, we're, we're, we're chanting um, the three refuges. Um, I take refuge in Buddha, I take refuge in Dharma, I take refuge in Sangha. Um, so 
there is um, uh, uh, quite a, a bit involved uh, in um, pursuing, um, taking our vows. Uh, it's one way of saying to the world, um, I am a Zen Buddhist uh, and um, uh, my practice is, uh, is to live by the precepts and to work towards compassionate action. Uh, so a very large and important part of our practice is, um, is uh, finding ways in which to um, help um, others. Uh, it's through compassionate action. Um, one of the ways in which we do that is uh, through teaching others. One of the ways that we can um, alleviate suffering is by um, uh, sharing the Buddha's teachings um, that suffering is caused um, by our attachment um, and by our aversion. Um, and that our suffering is um, largely created uh, in our own minds. And because our suffering is based on impermanent, transient thoughts and feelings, uh, we can change how our mind works and we can let go of the sources of our suffering. So by teaching, uh, and using skillful means in order to do that. Skillful means just simply mean finding ways to uh, be able to impart those ideas uh, to others um, uh, that meets their needs, that meets their ability to, uh, to, to understand and comprehend these concepts um, is, uh, is, is a central piece a part of, um, of our Bodhisattva vows. So um, I wanted to start off. Um, uh, oh, and then, of course, um, uh, all of this preparation is, is, uh, is sort of culminated in, uh, in the, the, the Jukai ceremony itself, in which, uh, in our case, uh, our guiding teacher um, would, um, would be um, uh, I'm not even sure what the word is, but certifying, uh, uh, if you will, uh, our, our practice. And, uh, um, uh, it's a form of ordination. Uh, I, I think that would be the right word. Um, uh, sort of um, uh, certifying that we are um, practicing Zen Buddhists. So some of you who are here um, have already taken those vows um, uh, and are just here to perhaps learn more uh, or to refresh uh, your uh, commitment to our vows, to the precepts. Um, some of you are uh, looking at pursuing the path of the Bodhisattva, pursuing Jukai um, uh, for yourselves and for others. Uh, and then some of you are just here because you'd like to learn more about Zen Buddhism. And this is a wonderful uh, way to do it. Um, because I think um, uh, our practice is truly um, uh, encapsulated by um, uh, the Bodhisattva way of life. So, um, you know, not all of us are going to become 
uh, Manju Sri, uh, you know, the, the great um, Bodhisattva of compassion, but uh, ordinarily, ordinary folks like you and I um, have the ability to change our lives um, by pursuing um, these, uh, these practices and these vows. And by changing our lives, we have the ability to, uh, to reach out and change the lives of others and to ease suffering in this world. And I, I think we would probably all agree, um, especially uh, the state of the world as it is right now, that that, that is uh, a, a very worthwhile um, pursuit and practice. So um, I wanted to start off by just saying a little bit about uh, Shanti Deva. Uh, you know, who is Shanti Deva? Uh, he was, in fact, a historical figure, a real person. Uh, and uh, Chris, will this be like in the past, the Jukai class was kind of the give and take, or yeah, as opposed to questions at the end, is it yeah. still going to be that way? Or yeah, just... yeah. Thanks for thanks for bringing that up. Um, yeah, so um, that is definitely the way I'd like to go. Okay. And um, the last time that I taught uh, a Jukai class, that was the format. Mm -hmm. So um, so glad you brought that up um, because many times in Dharma talks, um, uh, the questions and answers are sort of uh, reserved for the end. Um, but in this, um, in this class, um, my hope was that um, folks would just indicate, um, you know, by bowing in or uh, however you would like to signify that you have a question or a comment. I'm especially interested in hearing from people about your experiences uh, working um, uh, in your practice with the Bodhisattva vows or with the precepts. Um, so don't hesitate to do that. Don't feel like you're going to knock me off my course here. Um, the information that's important for us to learn uh, uh, will, will, will manifest uh, regardless of what course we take. So yeah, uh, please feel free to do that. Um, I, I feel like that really um, enlivens the, uh, the, the process. Um, so yeah, thanks for asking that, yeah. All right. Um, oh yeah, um, uh, I'm working with um, uh, primarily today um, the introduction to the book, The Way of the Bodhisattva by Shanti Deva. Um, if you don't have a copy of this already, I highly encourage you to get one. I also found um, in my research that um, Pima Chodron uh, had written a book uh, called Becoming Bodhisattvas, which is a commentary on the way of the Bodhisattva. So um, I found that to be uh, quite helpful as well. So I'll be doing some reading and, and quoting a few things from, from her work as well. Um, but I was going to jump in here um, in the uh, in the introduction to the book. Um, first off, there's a little definition here of bodhisattva, of those beings who, turning aside from the futility and sufferings of samsara, nevertheless renounce the peace of an individual salvation and vow to work for the deliverance of all beings. So uh, nice, nice definition, I think. 
so a little bit about Shantideva. Uh, the author of the Way of the Bodhisattva was a member of the monastic university of Nalanda. It's one of the most, which was one of the most celebrated centers of learning in ancient India. They describe him as a person who was highly unusual and had an independent personality. It would seem that Shantideva was very much his own master, temperamentally impervious to social and ecclesiastical pressures, and able to pursue his insights irrespective of conventional explanations and public opinion. He possessed to a remarkable degree, the unusual combination of powerful intelligence linked with a keen appreciation of the sufferings of the world and a deep sense of tenderness towards others. And uh, some wonderful, we don't actually know all that much about um, his, his actual life, but uh, what some of the things that we do know, um, uh, I was going to share with you, as well as some stories uh, that may or may not be true um, about how uh, he came to share the way of the Bodhisattva uh, with the world. Uh, and then also, I think, maybe a, a few uh, mystical aspects to his story as well. So Shantideva was born in India, uh, 1685. He lived until seven. 63, so he was 8th century uh, Indian. Uh, he lived to be 78 years old, and he was uh, the son of a king. Uh, so the way of the Bodhisattva was composed in India over 12 centuries ago. Um, some of the things that were said about uh, Shantideva, uh, he had no fixed abode no belongings, and was very unconventional and spontaneous in his behavior. Yet he was a powerful and very wise teacher whose spiritual realization manifested in all the situations of his life. He related to people with great compassion and tenderness, but also with ruthless honesty. Shantideva was a prince in 8th century India and as the eldest son was destined to inherit the throne. In one account of the story, the night before his coronation, Shantideva had a dream in which Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of wisdom, appeared to him and told him to renounce worldly life and seek ultimate truth. Thus Shantideva left home immediately, giving up the throne for the spiritual path, just as the historical Buddha had done. In another version, the night before his enthronement, Shantideva's mother gave him a ceremonial bath using scalding water. When he asked why she was intentionally burning him, she replied, son, this pain is nothing compared to the pain you will suffer when you're king. And on that very night, he rapidly departed. I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever the catalyst, Shantideva disappeared into India and began living the life of a renunciate. Eventually, he arrived at Nalanda University, where he, which was the largest, most powerful monastery in India at the time, a place of great learning, 
that attracted students from all over the Buddhist world. At Nalanda, he was ordained a monk and given the name Shantideva, which translates as God of Peace. Contrary to what his later reputation suggests, Shantideva was not well liked at Nalanda. Apparently, he was one of those people who didn't show up for anything, never studied, or coming to, or, or never studied, or coming to practice, practice sessions. His fellow monks said that his three realizations were eating, sleeping, and shitting. <laughs> Finally, in order to teach him a lesson, they invited him to, to give a talk to the entire university. Only the best students were accorded such an honor. You had to sit on a throne and, of course, have something to say. Since Shantideva was presumed to know nothing, the monks thought he would be shamed and humiliated into leaving the university. That's one story. Another version presents a more sympathetic view of Nalanda, whereby the monks hoped that by embarrassing Shantideva, they could motivate him to study. Nevertheless, like all sentient beings who are building a case against someone, they probably derived a certain joy from the possibility of making Shantideva squirm. It's said that they tried to further humiliate him by making the throne unusually high without providing any stairs. To their astonishment, Shantideva had no problem getting into the throne. He then confidently asked the assembled monks if they wanted traditional teachings or something they had never heard before. When they replied that they wanted to hear something new, he proceeded to deliver the entire Bodhicharya or the way of the Bodhisattva. Not only were these teachings very personal, full of useful advice and relevant to their lives, they were also poetic and fresh. The content itself was not radical. In the very first verses, Shantideva says that everything he's about to teach derives from the lineage of the Buddha. It wasn't his subject matter that was original. It was the direct and very contemporary way he expressed the teachings and the beauty and power of his words. This is where it gets a little mystical. Towards the end of the presentation, Shantideva began to teach on emptiness, the unconditioned, inexpressible, dreamlike nature of all experience. As he spoke, the teachings became more and more groundless. There was less and less to hold on to, and the monks' minds opened further and further. At that point, it is said that Shantideva began to float. He levitated upward until the monks could no longer see him and could only hear his voice. Perhaps this is just, perhaps this just expresses how enraptured his audience felt. We will never know for sure. What we do know is that after Shantideva's discourse on emptiness, he disappeared. By then, his disappearance probably disappointed the monks, but he never returned to Nalanda and remained a wandering yogi for the rest of his life. I think there's, you know, um, a, a couple things that uh, sort of stood out to me. Um, one of them is that um, each of us is a unique individual with unique gifts, and our 
um, personality, our experience is um, what we bring uh, to the practice. And um, uh, so sharing with others um, uh, our sort of innate personality uh, is a unique gift that we offer to, uh, to others. So Shantideva's personality, uh, his compassion, his wisdom, um, I think it's important uh, to know uh, the source of, of some of the uh, some of the teaching, um, and so he was uh, also um, uh, apparently a notoriously bad student, uh, and uh, you know that's something I can personally relate to. Um, you know, uh, when I'm practicing, I sometimes will miss a session here or there. Uh, or I might, uh, you know, cram my uh, reading uh, into the last moment, uh, or um, you know, various ways in which uh, you know we we sometimes squander some of our opportunities of uh, of practice or enlightenment. Um, and certainly, uh, as we study the the way of the Bodhisattva, we'll see that. Uh, um, there's uh, there's an emphasis on uh, on the uh, immediacy of uh, of practice that uh, that we don't have time to squander that um, being in this human form is a is a pivotal is a pivotal um, opportunity uh, we don't want to waste it one of the things that we do uh, oftentimes during shashin is um, uh, recite the evening gatha um, and um, uh, you know I, I think that is encouraging us to uh, to take advantage of the uh, of the opportunity that we have to awaken um, so but nonetheless I think it sort of humanized him uh, as I think we can all relate to the idea that uh, sometimes we uh, you know lighten up on our practice <laughs> I mean, what you just said right there with the, the short human existence, you know, not to squander it. And it was reminded me of something I just read recently. And I think it was it's either Shinra Suzuki or his teacher, so on, that said that this human existence has just the right amount of suffering and just the right amount of joy. Ah. And uh, if it were any more suffering, it would be too much. And if it weren't enough, there would be the impetus to, to practice. It's kind of interesting. I kind of yeah. thought of that when you thought about thinking yeah. about this human existence. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, of course, um, uh, Shantideva um, uh, experienced, uh, I'm sure, um, uh, Bodhicitta, which we'll be talking about next. Um, so he. Uh, he had the, the, the spark, he had the interest, um, uh, and he pursued that through his practice. He had become a monk. Uh, and so um, uh, as a result of his um, uh, awakening, uh, of course, I can't say whether he was uh, enlightened or not, but it certainly seems uh, that he was. He certainly had some enlightenment experiences, uh, some awakenings. Uh, and uh, therefore was able to teach um, about prajna. 
And um, uh, as we'll see uh, moving forward, um, our practice is um, uh, informed by or illuminated by prajna. So this is where the, um, the absolute and the relative, the form and the emptiness um, um, are interpenetrating and, and one whole. So um, uh, towards the end of his discourse, um, before he floated up into the sky, <laughs> apparently, um, he, was, he was focusing on those wisdom teachings, um, which we will get around to in chapter nine of, uh, of our text. So anyway, a little introduction to who Shantideva was and where some of these teachings came from. Next thing I wanted to talk with about is um, uh, in the introduction under the heading of the dawn of Bodhicitta. What is Bodhicitta? Chitta means mind, thought, attitude. Bodhi means enlightenment, awakening, and is cognate with the term Buddha itself. This gives us mind of enlightenment or awakened mind. The attitude of mind that tends towards Buddhahood, the enlightened state. So I started to talk about the ultimate and the relative. Um, According to tradition, bodhicitta is said to have two aspects, or rather to exist on two levels. First, one speaks of ultimate bodhicitta, referring to the direct cognizance of the true status of phenomena. This is the wisdom of emptiness, an immediate, non-dual insight that transcends conceptualization. Second, there is relative bodhicitta, by which is meant the aspiration to attain the highest good, or Buddhahood, for the sake of all, together with all practical steps necessary to achieve this goal. The connection between these two bodhicittas, the wisdom of emptiness on the one hand, and the will to deliver beings from suffering on the other, is perhaps not immediately clear. But within the Buddhist perspective, as Shantideva gradually reveals, ultimate and relative bodhicitta are two interdependent aspects of the same thing. The true realization of emptiness is impossible without the practice of per perfect compassion, while no compassion can ever be perfect without the realization of the wisdom of emptiness. So this is kind of a key um, piece uh, when we're looking at um, uh, kind of uh, how our uh, sitting practice, how our meditative practice um, and our experience, uh, our glimpses of awakening or emptiness uh, coincide and work together with our practicing the precepts. The precepts are sort of our uh, guide um, uh, for how to function in a compassionate way in the relative world. Um, so the precepts, uh, and I'm going to talk about those a little bit in, in a little bit here, but the precepts 
um, uh, are open to uh, interpretation. Uh, it's not like, a, you know, a total like, hey, you know, just do your own thing, you know, uh, figure out, you know, uh, what they mean to you and go from there. I mean, there is um, certainly some uh, consensus and some uh, agreement and discussion of how precepts are um, uh, understood and practiced. Uh, certainly, we get guidance from, from our teachers. Um, on, on how to apply the precepts. Um, but our precepts are also um, inspired by or guided by um, the wisdom of emptiness. Um, so uh, we'll come back to that again. Uh, but one example of that uh, is that, um, uh, you know, why do I want to um, practice compassion towards other people? And uh, immediately when I start to ask that question or to think in those terms, there's the duality that's there. There's me and my interests, my egocentric view, my egocentric way of looking at the world. And then there's the other. And, um, you know, the other being either, you know, sympathetic folks, um, you know, our friends and loved ones, uh, or the other whom we perceive as a threat or an enemy or someone um, who is trying to, uh, to harm us or harm the world. Um, so when we are um, through our, our, our practice of mindfulness and our, our practice of, of sitting in Zazen, uh, when we start to um, expand our conscious awareness of the, um, the, the, the difference between ourselves and others starts to fall away. So that duality starts to, to drop off and we can see that the way in which we treat others is directly related to our own well-being. And our sense of well-being, uh, you know, my ability to live by the precepts uh, sets the groundwork for a peaceful, hopefully, uh, life, a more harmonious life which in turn allows me to um, perhaps be a little bit more grounded and create the conditions uh, for, um, for greater awareness and enlightenment. Um, so, so there's that connection. There's, there's the connection of how we practice in this world in a relative sense and how our Practicing the precepts, practicing compassion in this world is uh, informed by and guided by um, our um, experience uh, through Zazen of uh, emptiness. So form and emptiness, very prominent teaching uh, in, in Zen Buddhism. Uh, and there's Mark, who's joining us from California. Hi, Mark. <laughs> Sorry, I just woke up. Oh, glad you could join us. Thank you. And for several, several hours. Uh, difference, so. Uh, okay. Waking up, Mark. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
So yeah, basically what I've done is kind of, you know, read through the text and then um, highlighted some things that I thought might be uh, helpful or of interest. Um, so here's another passage. Um, it is the startling assertion of Buddhist teaching that the mind itself, even the mind in samsara, is never and has never been ultimately alienated from the state of enlightenment. Bodhicitta is, in fact, its true nature and condition. So it's kind of awakening to our mind's true nature. Um, the mind is not identical with the defilement and distraction that beset and usually overwhelm it, and thus it may be freed from them. It is capable of growth and improvement and may be trained. Thank goodness. By using methods and tools grounded in the duality of subject and object, the mind has the power to evolve towards a wisdom and a mode of being, in fact, its own true nature, that utterly transcends this duality. So, um, one of the um, things that um, uh, I think we are struck with uh, as we go through the text uh, is this idea that uh, in, in the description uh, the Bodhisattva freeing uh, individuals from the hell realm and from other forms of suffering, imprisonment, uh, and so forth. And there's um, uh, some very graphic uh, descriptions of, uh, of all of the various ways in which um, we suffer. Uh, and um, uh, so it's important to recognize that, um, you know, Buddhism is very different than um, how we might think of um, hell um, from a Christian perspective. Um, so individuals who are, who find themselves in the hell realm, uh, and by the way, there's no need, uh, there's no requirement to believe in a hell uh, or a hell realm. Um, so um, in fact, this very thing came up in one of our more recent Dharma talks where we were discussing, you know, what, what are these, these various realms? And um, uh, we were, one of the ideas that came, came up was the idea that uh, the home realm is, is uh, for example, or the realm of the hungry ghost or any of the others are transient um, uh, states of consciousness um, and uh, uh, that by our, um, by our actions, we can um, put ourselves into uh, the realm of the hungry ghost or the realm of the hell realm or the, the you know, a joyous realm, the heavenly realm. Um, and uh, as, as Keith was pointing out, we have just the right amount of, uh, of each uh, to keep us going. 
um, joy and suffering both. Um, but, uh, but to actually believe that there is, um, you know, some dimension where individuals are suffering um, for eons and eons and eons um, is a belief that's totally, completely optional. Um, so uh, if, if you choose to believe that, that that's fine. Um, just as, um, uh, you know, if you choose to believe that, um, you know, we, we have reincarnation or that we're born again um, uh, over and over um, into various states, uh, totally an optional belief. Um, in fact, Zen kind of takes the position of, you know, we don't really know what happens after life. Um, uh, we take the position that um, uh, no one's ever come back and told us. Um, but when you um, uh, read through um, uh, many of the early Buddhist texts or, um, <clears throat> for example, the Lotus Sutra, there's lots and lots of very mystical kinds of experiences that are described. Um, and usually they're in beautiful lyrical language. Um, uh, so, you know, whether you take these, those things, um, um, you know, in a concrete, real way, or whether you take them symbolically is totally, completely up to you. Um, but there is this idea that, um, that the Bodhisattva kind of comes and frees all of these individuals um, from the hell realm. And, uh, you know, when you traditionally think of folks that, you know, um, uh, should be um, separated from society or incarcerated or, um, um, you know, who, you know, many people would say, you deserve to go to hell, you know, um, there's, there's perhaps a sense of, uh, of injustice, you know, like, um, you know, these people did terrible deeds and, um, uh, you know, why should they be, um, um, liberated, you know? Um, so you can think, you know, in, of whatever the, the worst kinds of transgressions um, that come about, you know, um, a Hitler who has uh, um, perpetrated genocide or a pedophile or a rapist or a murderer. Um, you know, you can think of, of folks who have committed um, great harm uh, towards others and sort of, um, maybe be a little bit um, outraged at the idea that uh, that a bodhisattva would come and sort of liberate all of those folks from their suffering. You know, you might feel like, well, you know what, they deserve to suffer. Um, so one thing that I think is or a couple of things that I think that are important to sort of um, uh, think about and, and perhaps realize or internalize um, first off, you know, our conceptions of human justice are, are, are very, very relative. Um, you know, if I um, um, commit some sort of act in one state uh, in the United States, it could be completely illegal. But if I were to cross the border into another state and do the same thing, no problem. Um, uh, capital punishment is legal in some states and not in others, in some countries and not in others. Um, 
laws come and go depending on what Congress enacts and they're interpreted by what judges say and their, um, you know, our sense of moral um, compass or our out more moral outrage um, is often societally driven, you know, or driven by whatever uh, group we belong to. So uh, these, these um, uh, concepts of justice, although there are some that we tend to agree about, um, you know, uh, uh, most societies condemn murder and rape and pedophilia and uh, uh, incest and these kinds of things. Most societies um, uh, universally sort of frown upon those activities. Um, but nonetheless, um, uh, they are um, uh, part of our sort of relative um, um, sense of justice. And um, uh, so when we're looking at um, the Bodhisattva way, um, we're looking at, um, I think, two things. One is, uh, rather than a, you know just a more arbitrary um, sense of you know just or unjust um, or if you will um, uh, sin or holiness uh, some people would think of it in those terms we're looking at the laws of karma and the laws of karma um, you know they're extremely complex and we don't always understand how they work um, uh, however um, uh, in many instances, we can pretty clearly see that wholesome, healthy, positive actions result in uh, positive things in the world, positive outcomes, uh, healthy outcomes, helpful outcomes to others. And our unhealthy, unwholesome, negative behaviors uh, cause suffering uh, and disharmony and pain in both ourselves and in others. And so, um, uh, so this is really kind of um, uh, perhaps a better uh, standard of um, evaluating or looking at um, uh, cause and effect of, of our actions. Um, and that's especially helpful when we're thinking about um, how we interact with those who have harmed us or whom have harmed our loved ones or who have harmed society, um, that these individuals um, who have committed um, unwholesome, unhealthy acts um, were themselves in the grip of their own um, uh, karma and um, uh, perhaps suffered as the result of, um, of, of others' actions themselves. So one way of thinking about this that um, often comes up um, when I'm working um, in, uh, in, in therapy uh, and, and, and folks are thinking about, you know, and they're feeling, you know, uh, you know guilty about, um, let's say, their negative harmful actions um, during their addictions. Um, to drugs or alcohol. Uh, and we try to get people to understand and to internalize the idea of, you know, sick, not bad. So even though they may have um, caused a, a great deal of harm as a result of their addictive behaviors, um, uh, they were doing that uh, not because they were bad people. Uh, 
but because they uh, have uh, uh, an illness or sickness. So addiction is seen as a state of ill health. Um, so similarly, um, uh, we can look at others in the same way. So perhaps one way to sort of um, humanize that thought would be um, that uh, uh, when we try to help others, like let's say um, as a part of your practice, you had decided that you want to work with um, folks that are in prison, you know, and, and, and you would go and perhaps um, you would start a sitting group in prison. Um, or you would bring a recovery group to prison, you know, you, you run an AA meeting in there or, or a Dharma recovery meeting or something like that. You, when you go in, you know, you, you're not judging the folks that are there. You're not saying you don't deserve uh, health or well-being or wellness because of what you did. Um, you go in there with the idea of um, trying to alleviate their suffering and to bring wholesome, healthy um, uh, ways of thinking and ways of life into, into their lives and thinking about ways that you can support them uh, and end their suffering. And of course, in our case, it might be uh, thinking about ways in which we can uh, introduce some of our, our, our Buddhist thoughts or concepts to others. So this is what um, the, the, the Bodhisattva way of life is about. Uh, it's the, 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 the overarching idea of ending suffering. Um, and uh, it's difficult to imagine something that would be um, deeper than the suffering that perhaps a murderer might feel, um, you know, a crime of passion that occurs in the moment. Uh, and then many, many years of, of sitting and contemplating your action and its reverberations. Um, so um, being able to bring um, a measure of, um, of peace or calm or acceptance uh, or forgiveness, uh, self-forgiveness um, to someone in that position would be extremely helpful. And this is sort of the the uh, way of the bodhisattva is to end suffering wherever um, we find it. Um, and we're not judging um, folks for why they're suffering. In fact, um, because of um, our experience of prajna and the wisdom teachings, we see that we suffer uh, in, in, in many of the same ways. Um, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh um, often talks about the idea that um, uh, each of us is also a murderer, each of us is also a rapist, that we, we, we contain those seeds um, in, in, in all of us. Um, so that, that, again, that separation between, you know, the convicted felon and ourselves um, uh, starts to drop off. I think you bring up a good point of the heaven and hell states are almost like a state of mind. Um, the universe is very mental, I think, sometimes more than physical. And I think uh, depending on your depictions of what reality is, depends on where you're going to be. So you could view situations or uh, occurrences completely different than somebody else. So the poor man might be much happier than the rich man, even though he has nothing or she has nothing compared to what the rich man has everything but hates his life.
Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, one of my favorite uh, uh, sayings, uh, I forget where I heard this, but you know, what's the difference between a rich man and a poor man? Uh, the rich man suffers um, uh, in, uh, in, in uh, well, oh, how did it go? The rich man suffers in greater um, comfort. Yeah, the rich man <laughs> suffers in greater comfort. <laughs> So, um, and then again, and I think this is really um, very timely because um, uh, our society has become so divided, um, you know, political parties, um, uh, positions on various issues. Um, uh, so this idea that um you know we have enemies we have people who are out to harm us you know we have people that want to enact laws that we don't agree with or um, as a result of uh you know the the three poisons greed hatred delusion um are doing harmful acts and we kind of wonder you know what what our uh, innate responses to that you know and 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 we get upset and we get angry uh, and, um, you know, we might in, indulge in, um, you know, uh, a lot of um, uh, kind of hateful speech against these folks. Um, uh, and uh, so we, you know, many people are having very um, uh, strong reactions um, to a lot of what's happening in, in our world. And, and it's not only in the realm of politics, but um, in the realm of social justice or in the realm of climate change. Uh, all of these things uh, bring about deep, deep feelings in us. Uh, or perhaps it's just, um, uh, you know, the, the folks that we interact with, you know, perhaps it's the, uh, the individual at the office who is just obnoxious, you know, um, uh, who uh, or, or someone who uh, perhaps doesn't like us and is making our lives <clears throat> miserable um, or the, uh, the the bad driver who's cutting us off in traffic. You know, we have lots and lots of opportunities for interaction uh, with others. And uh, as Buddhists, um, and especially if we're looking at, um, uh, you know, taking up the Bodhisattva vows, um, you know, uh, how do we how do we look at these in situations and, and how do we interact with these individuals that we perceive as wanting to do us harm? And it's a you know, it's 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 a great question, because so often when we're interacting and we're experiencing our own um, aversion and our own anger and our own hatred, uh, it's harming us. Uh, you know, even short of looking at how we put that out into the world, just harboring all of those uh, thoughts and emotions uh, is interfering with our own sense of, of well-being and strengthening our own uh, negative ego states. Um, and uh, so Shantideva points out the idea that uh, these folks in our lives are opportunities for us um, to learn and to grow and to change. 
So, um, you know, he points out the difference between these aversive individuals uh, versus, you know, our friends and family, for example, although our families can be quite aversive as well, <laughs> as can our friends on occasion. Um, but uh, just the idea that, that, that these folks are, are individuals who um, uh, are giving us an opportunity to change and grow. So if, if we were only surrounded by pleasant individuals all the time, we wouldn't have to stretch very much. Um, so where we stretch is where we uh, suffer. And our suffering is one of the things that um, uh, leads us to um, transforming the way in which we think and behave. Um, so uh, these are seen as opportunities for uh, compassionate action and compassionate ideas and compassionate feelings towards others. Um, so it's uh, it's these are, are are opportunities that we can we can we can work with. All right. Let's see what else what else I'd like to take a look at here. Yeah, so um, what we're doing uh, as bodhisattvas is we're, um, uh, we're working with suffering uh, however or wherever we find it um, in a sort of non-judgmental, accepting way. Um, and, uh, and then we kind of move on. Uh, in, uh, so the introduction is kind of really pretty awesome because it's sort of a commentary um, on, you know, like when we start with chapter one and start looking at the actual verses that, uh, that Shantideva has written. But the introduction is really a, a very, very helpful way of sort of getting a, a, a broader overview of everything that, uh, that, that, that's going to be coming up. Uh, and um, one of the things that comes up is this idea of confession. Uh, so, um, the realization that we are in a position to change ourselves and so shape our destiny leads logically to confession, the subject of Shantideva's second chapter. Here it should be understood that although regret is naturally entailed, this does not involve an orgy of guilty breastfeeding or exaggerated feelings of inadequacy. In Buddhism, confession is to be understood principally in the sense of open acknowledgement primarily to oneself of past behavior. When former actions and one's own nature are confronted, when old behavior patterns and tendencies are raised into consciousness, then and only then can they be changed. Then and only then is a new direction possible. So, uh, you know, clearly, uh, uh, if we're unaware, um, of uh, ways in which we've kind of fallen off the path uh, or unaware of our harmful behaviors or patterns of behaviors or the origin of our behaviors. Uh, if we're unaware of those things, we can't change them. So um, I often tell my patients, um, you know, uh, awareness is the first step in, uh, towards change. Uh, so, um, but, you know, again, you know, in Buddhism, we don't have a deity, 
who is there to judge us and um, to uh, forgive us for our sins or our transgressions. In Buddhism, it's quite a different view. It's simply, as this passage indicated, um, being aware of uh, where we fall off the path. So um, as, as practicing Buddhists, we've decided that um, we want to pursue um, uh, a, a Buddhist way of life. And um, uh, there are many times um, in our Buddhist teachings where we recognize, um, um, I believe it was uh, A. Hey Dogen who said, um, uh, my life is one continual mistake. Um, so um, this, this idea of um, uh, moving away from our practice and coming back to it, um, uh, moving away from mindfulness or from awareness and then returning to it is a continual process. So it's not that we have, you know, sinned and transgressed and, you know, uh, done something terrible, but it's more a recognition of how this practice works. And the way it works is that, um, you know, we get distracted and uh, we get preoccupied and we squander opportunities. And, uh, you know, this is just part and partial of being human. And so um, the idea of, um, of uh, uh, confession in Buddhism is simply a, 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 an acknowledgement of the fact that, uh, that, that we, we fall off the path, our, our attention gets uh, diverted. And uh, mindfulness is the constant process of bringing our attention back to the present moment. And Zazen is, uh, is, is, is a very uh, concentrated way uh, in an environment uh, that minimizes our distraction where we can see that process occurring. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, all of us are prone to, uh, uh, you know, uh, getting caught up in uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. Uh, some, sometimes, uh, uh, especially more, you know, lately in our, in our current time, in our current um, uh, situation, fear or anxiety uh, is often listed now as, a, as an additional poison. Um, you know, at some point in the recent past, um, anxiety became the number one mental health disorder, uh, where it used to be depression, but they've, they've switched. Of course, they go hand in hand, but, um, but uh, anxiety is now the, the number one. Um, so, you know, this, this idea of, you know, we're continually falling off and returning to, uh, to our path. And uh, so, you know, uh, I, I like the idea that, you know, we're not beating ourselves up about it. We're just simply acknowledging that, you know, this is the part and partial of, of, uh, of, of being uh, uh, human and uh, part and partial of, um, of our uh, Buddhist practice.
All right. So um, I like this passage here. Um, that uh, a lot of um, uh, what Shanti Deva does is, um, you know, see uh, his practice as being sort of a heroic um, practice where he's sort of strengthening his uh, his um, his resolve. Uh, he is. Uh, uh, I like the term like spiritual warrior. You know, like he's 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 fighting uh, suffering. He's fighting his own tendencies to sort of backslide. Uh, and so he's encouraging himself and us to kind of stay on the path. Um, so um, uh, I wanted to um, mention um, what that path is. Um, uh, so as we are studying um, uh, towards um, uh, taking on our vows uh, through the Jukai ceremony, um, just a brief recitation of what our um, uh, practices uh, are, what our precepts are. So we have um, 16 great bodhisattva precepts. Um, so they consist of the three refuges, which we continually are chanting. Uh, I take refuge in Buddha. I take refuge in Dharma. I take refuge in Sangha. And it's also the three pure precepts I vow to embrace and sustain forms and ceremonies. I vow to embrace and sustain all good. I vow to embrace and sustain all beings. We again, we chant all, you know, continually, beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Those are bodhisattva vows um, that we are um, uh, continually uh, reciting. So uh, those are three and three, and then there's 10 grave precepts. So that makes up the 16 great bodhisattva precepts. The 10 grave precepts, a disciple of the Buddha does not kill. A disciple of the Buddha does not take what is not given. A disciple of the Buddha does not misuse sexuality. A disciple of the Buddha does not intoxicate mind or body of self or others. A disciple of the Buddha does not speak of the faults of others. A disciple of the Buddha does not praise self at the expense of others. A disciple of the Buddha does not, is not possessive of anything, especially the Dharma. A disciple of the Buddha does not foster ill will. A disciple of the Buddha does not disparage the triple treasure, which is Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So as you can tell, for example, by the Bodhisattva vow of, uh, I vow to save all beings, beings are numberless. Um, it's, uh, it, it, it's an impossible task. And um, I, I really liked what Shantideva said here. Uh, uh, where he was kind of noting like, um, 
The undertaking to which he has committed himself in a moment of optimistic zeal is devastating. Hesitation is understandable. So, you know, uh, sometimes we can be uh, overwhelmed by the sufferings of the world. And Shantideva kind of gives us, you know, maybe some guidelines on how we can kind of approach that. I think everyone, I've certainly heard it brought up in many different um, uh, Buddhist discussions and Dharma talks, um, that we can become overwhelmed by the sufferings of the world. And uh, Shantideva does not um, look away. In fact, he looks very deeply into the sufferings of others, um, sufferings of ourselves. Um, but for example, um, you know, if you are an avid uh, listener or, or watcher of the news, um, you can get pretty overwhelmed um, and you can walk away with a sense of hopelessness, you can walk away with a sense of depression or sadness or fear or anxiety about, you know, where, where the world is going. And um, so Shantideva having, having taken on these, uh, you know, this, uh, this way of life, these precepts that he's decided to follow, um, uh, you know, he's, you know, he's kind of overwhelmed for a moment there about, oh my gosh, what did I just do? What did I just commit myself to, you know? And uh, as Buddhists, we can, you know, we can feel that same way. You know, I've decided to take on uh, the Bodhisattva vows. Um, I've decided to live my life by the precepts. And then you kind of, you know, start practicing that. And, uh, you know, pretty soon you're kind of overwhelmed, like, hmm, let's see, does that really mean all beings? You know, does that mean the smelly homeless guy who is cursing at me? Um, does that mean um, the, uh, the, the neo-Nazi that lives down the street or the, you know, um, the, uh, should I say this, the, uh, the Trump supporter that lives across the hallway? Uh, you know, uh, does it involve all of those people? You know, uh, it can be uh, kind of a daunting, overwhelming uh, thought. And so Shantideva, although he very directly um, addresses all these forms of suffering, is kind of giving us some guidance that, you know, uh, this, this idea that, um, uh, you know, we can do this. Uh, we can be spiritual warriors. We don't have to be, even though we are compassionate to the sufferings of others, we don't have to become overwhelmed by them. We don't have to become paralyzed um, by them. And so I believe um, just like a, uh, you know, a bird, uh, you know, flies in the, in the, in the realm of the, of the sky and the fish swims in the realm of water, uh, we also have our own realm. Um, so we have our own sphere of influence, you know, um, um, because of um, my work, um, I, I'm, I'm fortunate to be able to influence, a, you know, a fairly substantial number of people. And, um, uh, and I can do that in my personal life as well. You know, um, I, I try to help my friends and my family. Um, and so, um, uh, and then, you know, sometimes I, you know, join up with a cause, you know, like I've been a 
Sierra Club member for I don't know how many years, you know, or I contribute uh, money to various causes, um, food bank or whatever. Um, so we can find um, uh, opportunities um, uh, to practice um, uh, compassion and social justice within our own realm. You know, we don't all have to become, you know, uh, national stage uh, politicians, you know, or um, uh, whatever, you know, you know, change makers or influencers or whatever. Um, we all have the opportunity to alleviate suffering um, within within uh, the realm in which we uh, abide. So, um, so, uh, so then Shantideva kind of um, uh, lays out, um, and of course for us, the, the, the precepts are sort of an embodiment of that. He lays out sort of a, um, a, a mental uh, training program, if you will. And uh, one of the things that he talks about is the idea that um, as we sit um, and as we practice mindfulness in our daily activities, we can start to see um, more and more subtle levels of how our thoughts and emotions and stories originate. Ordinarily, um, as we're going about our daily lives, we're pretty habit-driven. Um, we're habitual creatures. We have habitual ways of thinking and acting and habitual attitudes. And um, uh, sometimes those things um, kind of break the surface of our consciousness and jump right into action um, before we're even consciously aware of it. You know, I'm driving down the street, somebody cuts me off, next thing I know I'm swearing at them, giving them the finger. It can happen pretty quickly, you know, even to me. <laughs> so, um, so uh, Shantideva, you know, offers this suggestion that um, uh, we should be very, very mindful and aware on more and more subtle levels of sort of the bubbling up of these impulses. So um, he's kind of saying by the time they break the surface of action, it's kind of almost too late. Um, so we want to try to catch our harmful or unhealthy impulses um, before they get to the level of acting them out. Um, so uh, I think he says something like before you even uh, in the in the introduction says something like before you even walk across the room, you should be aware of the thought that is impelling you to do that. And um, uh, there was something about a log, like it should, it should be like a log um, uh, that just sits without uh, activity until you know um, where, your, um, where your impulse is coming from. So that's a, a very subtle um, uh, way of um, uh, expanding our conscious awareness um, before we act on it. So yeah, uh, and then of course he's got many other uh, practices that we can work with that are laid, laid out in the various um, uh, chapters that are coming up. Um, so, uh, yeah, I like this. It says he, he plots out a scheme of mental training that for its spiritual profund, 
profundity and psychological acuity has rarely been equaled and surely never surpassed anywhere or at any time in the history of the world's religions. And that's a pretty, pretty high praise there. The first message is, however immense the goal may seem, it is possible, provided that we want it and make the necessary effort. We can learn to be free. So um, uh, one of the uh, um, teachings, uh, one of the great promises uh, in the Lotus Sutra is that um, if you have heard Buddha's teachings and been open to them even one time for a moment, you are on your way to becoming a Buddha. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in the conceptual scheme of things, um, uh, that could take uh, many kalpas, it could take many uh, rebirths and lifetimes. Um, but I think we can see that that um, occurs for us uh, on a daily basis. Um, uh, we often have moments of, uh, of enlightenment, of awareness. Uh, we are able to change our behaviors and by pursuing um, our uh, Zen Buddhist practice, um, uh, we can change and we're, uh, we're on that path. And um, so the promises that are sort of contained in the Lotus Sutra, I think, really ring true here um, that um, uh, Bodhicitta, Bodhicitta is our, our uh, uh, original face. It's our original mind. It's our original way of being. Many things can get in the way of that. Um, but as we um, uh, chip away, if you will, at our distractions, um, and practice mindfulness and practice sitting meditation, um, we can embody uh, that awareness, um, that insight, that wisdom uh, into our daily activities. And certainly um, the, the precepts that we choose to follow uh, are a way or uh, they provide the guidance um, for how to uh, act and behave in this world towards ourselves and others. So um, yeah, just wanted to check in with folks. How are we doing? Are we still are we still good? Should we go on? Do you have? Should we take a little question and answer break? Uh, we've been at it for a little while here, so I know uh, I've I've heard um, you know studies or whatever that the human mind's ability to concentrate <laughs> is about fifty minutes, yeah. which is why a lot of classes and therapy sessions are. Uh, 50 minutes long. Uh, we've been well over that for some time now, so uh, I don't want to uh, go on. Of course, as, as Zen Buddhists, we have greater capacities for, uh, <laughs> for these kinds of things, but I don't want to push it too far. Um, so Zen Buddhists also have that knack for condensing it all down to one sentence. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. There you go. So I will actually do that <laughs> by, by way of maybe perhaps if you guys are ready to just kind of conclude here. Um, huh. 
I'm just going to read these two paragraphs and then one quote. And I think the quote is really, really where I'd like to end. Um, the Sanskrit term bodhicitta is often translated as awakened heart and refers to an intense desire to alleviate suffering. On the relative level, bodhicitta expresses itself as longing. Specifically, it is the heartfelt yearning to be to free oneself from the pain of ignorance and habitual patterns in order to help others do the same. This longing to alleviate the sufferings of others is the main point. We start close to home with the wish to help those we know and love, but the underlying inspiration is global and all-encompassing. Bodhicitta is a sort of mission impossible, the desire to end the suffering of all beings, including those we've never met, as well as those we loathe. On the absolute level, bodhicitta is non-dual wisdom, the vast unbiased essence of mind. Most importantly, it is your mind, yours and mine. It may seem distant, but, in, but it isn't. In fact, Shantideva composed this text to remind himself that he could contact his wisdom mind and help it to flourish. So the verse that I wanted to end on was actually uh, one by uh, uh, Agarjuna. May Bodhicitta, may Bodhicitta, precious and sublime, arise where it has not yet come to be, and where it has arisen, may it not decline, but grow and flourish ever more and more. And that is my hope for all of us. <laughs> So um, before we um, chant out, um, does anyone have any questions or comments or observations or anything that you'd like to, to add or to share? I think it was a good, good start. Thank you. Got a lot out of it. It's good to... Uh, to re uh, just to retouch these things at a, a greater to go back and refocus on the basics and I think it's uh, I'm in need of that very much so and appreciate you starting this class up so that was very good thank you appreciate that thank you yeah. Joe oh I can't hear him because <laughs> um, he we heard Mark earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Joe, are you muted? Of course not. Oh, good. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> um, I was just hunting in the introduction for something that uh, uh, Keith just reminded me of. Give me one moment. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's on page four. Uh, the Shanti Deva's basic rule of thumb is the ground gain must be retained at all costs. In other words, he's saying we got to keep practicing. If we slack off, we can lose it. Yeah. And and I really feel that because <laughs> you know once in a great great while I might slack off a little bit, like like you know, recently. And, and I feel I'm glad you're confessing that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Great great while. <laughs> Last great while was a few months ago. <laughs> but 
Yeah, and I, I can feel that. So the, the, the constant, you know, the daily practice and the, you know, regular sanghas and, and everything is, <clears throat> is just insurpassable for helping me at least keep in touch and, and not totally losing it. So. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, as, as you know, um, I took a sabbatical uh, during COVID and was practicing largely on my own. And um, yeah, I definitely could see how um, uh, practicing with Sangha is very important for maintaining um, uh, our motivation. Uh, so our sitting practice, our reading, our um, interaction with other um, fellow Buddhists, Zen Buddhists, um, is, is very, very important to our practice. And without that, I think we have a tendency to kind of start to fall off the path. You know, it's uh, our path is, is um, uh, although very joyful um, and um, brings us so much in terms of, um, of, of, of peace and equanimity and things of that nature, um, it's, it's not a particularly easy path. Um, so I do believe that we need, um, you know, uh, uh, Shantideva's encouragement and the encouragement of our fellow Buddhists to, um, to, to stay on the path. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Any other questions or comments before we end? All right. Well, I appreciate everyone's being here today. And I appreciate your attentiveness. And um, we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and chant out. May our intention equally penetrate every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless, <clears throat> I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. Hi, Joe. <laughs> <laughs>